You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. New York City restaurateur Danny Meyer and New Orleans chef Nina Compton join Washington Post Live to discuss the path forward for the restaurant industry after the pandemic, measures to keep customers safe, and the industry's role in the broader economy. Let's listen. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. My name is Laura Riley, and I'm the business of food reporter here at The Post. Please, uh, thanks for joining us for this ongoing series, The Path Forward. Today, we'll be discussing the restaurant industry. And to give their perspective on the ways in which the industry has changed over the course of the pandemic, we have restaurateurs Danny Meyer and Nina Compton. Thank you both for joining us today. Good morning. Good morning. So, Danny, I'd like to start with you. Uh, you made a lot of uh, waves several weeks back when you said you were going to ask for vaccination proof from staff and, and customers. And since then, a lot of other restaurant groups have joined that, that position. And now we have all of New York City restaurants that will have to require proof of vaccination by September 13th. I'd like to get your thoughts on um, why you kind of were an early adopter of that position, what, what drove you to that, and how that's played out for you personally in your restaurants. I think that New York was an early adopter of COVID, unfortunately, and we had so many really tough experiences in the city with having to lay people off, close restaurants, take forever to get reopened. And as we stumbled our way back into business mm -hmm. in 2020, it was almost always based on things like trying to take people's temperatures in order to allow them to dine outdoors uh, and or QR codes to get contact tracing. And there's just no question in my mind that the one thing that finally moved our economy forward and allowed us to begin to hire people back and to begin to open our doors to guests was when the vaccinations were starting to be much more uh, available to people. And, and so it's very, very clear to me when you, when you look at data, especially when the Delta variant started to uh, sweep through the country, that people who were not vaccinated had a far, far greater uh, level of, of infection and, and hospitalizations in some cases. And so it was clear to us that we did not want to go back, that, that getting this economy back on its feet was far, far more important than anything else. And so we said, let's do what we think is the right thing from a hygiene standpoint, both for our staff members and our guests. And so we took a stand on it. So I misspoke before. So I guess the mandate begins today. So Danny, how, how is it that you're going to enforce this? What, what are the kind of protocols or training uh, sessions that you need to do with staff to make this work seamlessly and not really put them in the kind of the role of, of the police in this very acrimonious situation? Yeah, well, that's actually a great point. Uh, that's the last thing we want to do. It's it's actually quite helpful that this is now a citywide mandate. So we're not asking our staff members to do anything that, that restaurant goers throughout New York City won't be experiencing wherever they go to dine. But keep in mind, this is a two-sided uh, requirement that we're, that we're asking. We are asking our staff members themselves to prove that they've been vaccinated, and we're asking our guests to prove that they've been vaccinated. We didn't think we could ask one uh, constituency and not the other. How, how would it feel if you were a staff member if we didn't require this of our guests? And, and 
at the same time, how would you feel if you were a guest understanding that we didn't require it of our staff members? So from a staff standpoint, uh, it's the same type of credentialing that we ask for so many other aspects before we hire you. And there's been a lot of information gathering, a lot of counseling, and we've had a pretty good success at converting some, not all people. Uh, I'm sad to say we probably will lose some staff members, but they won't be going to other New York City restaurants because it's it's now the law throughout New York City. We, we do have some concern that we may lose some hospitality employees to say retail because unfortunately the mandate in New York City does not apply to all different business sectors. It's entertainment, gyms, and restaurants. So we'll see what happens there. With respect to our guests, uh, we're, we're gonna do the exact same protocol that we did for months when we were taking everybody's temperature, asking everybody to uh, provide information so we could do contact tracing. Only this time it's gonna be a matter of please show us uh, your smartphone where many, many people have their uh, proof of vaccination digitally stored. And for those who don't, they have a CDC card with a proof of vaccination. And it's a pretty straightforward thing. I've already experienced this as a guest in other people's restaurants. And I think people who have been vaccinated are all too happy to know that they're gonna be surrounded by and served by people who have been vaccinated. So Nina, uh, your two restaurants are in New Orleans, uh, a city that has seen a big surge in terms of the Delta variant infection rate, um, and also that will soon be implementing a vaccine mandate uh, for, for dining out. How, how have you dealt with this and, and how much pushback has there been? And, and what, what's the consensus in the restaurant community about this being the path forward? Well, you know, New Orleans, from the beginning of the pandemic, we were a hotspot last March. And the mayor did a really good job of keeping the cases down and controlling events and everything else. And vaccinations, we are actually trending number one in the beginning of vaccination uh, rollout. And then now we are trending actually backwards with now being another hotspot with a lot of cases. So today they're um, rolling out the enforcement of the vaccine mandate for restaurants and also just any event that you go to, you have to, a music venue, you have to present your vaccine um, card. So I think that is something that's gonna really help us move forward because we were stabilized as an industry, I think the past couple of months, and then now there's a lot of uncertainty, but I think with the vaccination requirement, it's gonna get us back on track and get us, you know, where we need to be as a society to the new normal of that being the past and now, living a safe, comfortable life and be able to go out and you know dine safely or go to an events venue safely. So Nina, I think the first time we spoke was right when the Independent Restaurant Coalition came together and you were kind of a strong voice in that early on. I'd love for you to back up a little bit and talk about how the various tranches of relief, the, the PPP and the, the Restaurant Relief Fund, have been insufficient in uh, making restaurants whole or even kind of close to whole over this. H how was the PPP um, not designed specifically for restaurants? I mean, for our lay, lay uh, viewership here, they may not understand how that kind of one size fits all approach didn't work for, for your industry. Of course. Uh, so a lot of when, when the pandemic hit, you know, restaurants were forced to shut down. Some were doing takeout, some were you know, dining out only. Um, and that was a very tough thing for us to pivot because 
we always felt we were one step behind with this with this virus because we were trying to operate our businesses safely and every time that we tried to do something it was not quick enough and a lot of people end up closing their restaurants just to figure stuff out because this is a very deadly virus and we wanted to make sure we we're operating safely so we closed both our restaurants until we felt that we had enough information to operate safely and during that time we had to follow most of our staff um, and try and figure out how we can do this again is to reopen safely get everybody back um, employed and at that time the government wasn't giving any relief to our industry and when they finally you know heard our voices they rolled out the ppp which was at that time a quick band-aid because the rules that they had in place were we'll give you the funding you have eight weeks to spend it which is not really ideal for anybody because then after eight weeks you have to lay everybody off I joined the IRSC when they had just formed uh, late March, early April. And we were just restauranteurs that were pulling our hair out, trying to understand what are we going to do? How are we going to save this industry? It's 11 million people employed in the hospitality industry in this country. That's a lot of people that were left out in the cold, not understanding what's next. So we were having these meetings three times a week, trying to understand how can we save this industry? So we went to Congress and we said the verbiage and the the restrictions for the PPP needs to be extended for um, a longer time so we can spend those funds wisely and keep the restaurants going. Of course that wasn't long enough. That wasn't enough funds for people to stay open. A lot of people that money ran very quickly. So we went to them again and said we need a ref the restaurant relief uh, fund to help us get back on track because a lot of people don't understand restaurants are expensive to run and you're dealing with a lot of staff. So there's a lot of things that you have to remember that to keep the restaurant going, you need a lot of cash flow. And those are the things we were trying to get from the government was to get the funding so we can keep those restaurants going for a longer period of time. Unfortunately, of course, the fund was exhausted very quickly because a lot of restaurants applied for those things. Some were larger, some were smaller. So a lot of the, the funds were exhausted very quickly because some of those um, venues that applied were not restaurants and they receive the funds. All right, Danny, I think I'd like to switch gears while we make sure that we get her connection squared away. Um, both of you have been extremely, you know, a restaurant is a, a or especially a restaurant group has a million moving parts and this has been a, an incredibly trying time. Why have you kind of chosen to take this leadership role right now um, in, in pointing out the, the unique challenges to the restaurant industry? First of all, uh, Nina's back, so if she wants to finish her thought, I'd, I'd be eager to hear it because I'm really grateful for her leadership. I, I promise I'll answer your question. But Right. So, so Nina, go ahead and, and, and go back to, you were talking about the Restaurant Relief Fund, and then it cut out briefly. So if you can revisit right. that. So in a nutshell, the Restaurant Relief Fund was exhausted quite uh, quickly because a lot of restaurants are in need and a lot of people did not receive the funding. So. So I Here heard we a third, are trying third, to get back on track. So about a third of applicants uh, received funding? Correct, a third of them received funding. And what we're trying to do is get that replenished. Right. And we really need the help to keep restaurants alive. Right. 
All right. So, so Danny, if you want to answer I, that I, question. I just, add, just want to add to that because I think that the, the restaurant relief program uh, was was had some really, really good aspects to it. And as Nina was just saying, unfortunately, the funding ran out after about a third of applicants had received their funding, which means two thirds of restaurants were out in the cold. Very briefly, here's what it did. It compared your, un unlike the PPP, which was a loan program that would either be forgivable or not if you were able to spend the, the funds, which as Nina was saying was where a lot of the problem was, the restaurant relief fund would compare your 2019 receipts to your 2020 receipts and would actually make a grant to the business if you received the, the, the funding of the delta between 2020 and 2019. And it, it was a wonderful thing for those who got it, a horrible thing for those who did not in ways that people did not foresee. So a lot of us think that what the government should have done would either be fund the whole thing but if they couldn't have funded the whole thing, wouldn't it have been better to give everybody a third of what they would have requested as opposed to a third of the people 100% and two thirds of the people 0%? Because now, unfortunately, we've got a really, really bad dynamic set up where our industry, which has come together so beautifully, uh, so many different restaurants, so many employees uh, that have been left out in the cold, and now it's pitting restaurant against restaurant because against the backdrop of a later of a labor shortage that you've all heard about and read about imagine that one third of the restaurants now have enough funding to be paying dramatically higher wages sometimes taking talent from the restaurants that didn't get the funding and so we are absolutely urging congress to pass a, a bill which is now sitting on the floor which is the replenishment act so that the two thirds of restaurants that, that were left out in the cold can achieve that funding and we can get this economy to, to keep moving forward. So you raise an excellent point, uh, the staffing issue. And I, I've talked to a lot of people in the industry who said, this isn't a staffing crisis, this is a wage crisis. That that's, the, that's been the problem, that this has been an industry issue for years. And obviously there have been many approaches to solving the, the problem of uh, things like the disparity in income between the back of the house and the front of the house in a restaurant, those kinds of things. I'd love to hear each of your thoughts on on the idea that um, this is calling attention to low wages or or very disparate wages in the industry. And is this a moment to reset and what can be done? So Nina, maybe start with you. I, I do agree that is, you know, I have been in this industry for quite some time and you look at the highest paid, you know, minimum wage needs to go up. I think the, the wages do need to go up. And I think that over the past year, we've had a lot of people just stop and think and say, I deserve more, which they rightfully do. Um, as an owner, it's not uh, that easy. So what we did at one of our, both of our restaurants, actually, we added a kitchen appreciation um, service charge that actually the guests can leave extra and each um, guest check the kitchen gets a percentage of that. It's also very tricky as Danny Meyer has done and I applaud him for when he did the no tipping because that is something that has been generational and it's just, there is such a divide between the back of the house and the front of the house. So this is a, a way of bridging that gap in the sense of the kitchen gets their own gratuity, um, uh, not interfering with the front of the house, if that makes sense. 
So Danny, I would like to hear your thoughts on the, on your no tipping experiment, and was that a disappointment to you, or how 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 are you thinking about that now? And and also, I'd like to hear your thoughts on kind of wages, kind of writ large in the in the industry. Well, I think that this moment is a necessary resetting in our industry, and I think that a lot of the uh, wage hikes that have necessarily happened for restaurants to be able to open their doors um, is going to stick. Um, anybody who could work remotely during COVID um, lost a lot fewer jobs than the kind of businesses, not just restaurants, but any business that you had to do in person um, during COVID, especially pre-vaccine, um, are, are experiencing severe labor shortages right now, whether it's drivers, truck drivers, delivery drivers, um, performing artists, um, anybody who, who is in the service industry who could not work during COVID had a whole lot of time to think about whether or not this is a, a career they wanted to come back to or not. And with everybody trying to hire at the exact same time, there's a there's a traffic jam and it's and and money and wages are part of what is solving that. And I think a lot of that is gonna stick. And that's a good thing. Our experiment, our five-year experiment with eliminating tipping was based on one thing. We have a lot of laws in this country, sadly, state by state laws, it's not a federal law, that prohibit tips to be shared between people who work in the dining room and people who cook the food. And it just was always evident to me two things. One, you don't work any less hard because you cooked the pasta as opposed to bringing the, the pasta to someone's table. And number two is that year after year, every time menu prices go up, tips go up because a tip is a a multiplier of your menu price. And that's a good thing for tipped employees, but it was not a good thing for people laboring in the kitchen um, who were not seeing the, the same type of annual compensation raise. So what we tried to do for five years was to, to narrow that wage disparity, uh, which was especially concerning because we also have statistics that show that the number of people with color who work in the back of the house where tips are not able to be shared is greater and the people who are white who work in the front of the house is greater than the, the number of people with color. So as an industry, I think this past year and a half has given us an opportunity to see both of those things, take a look. We have reinstituted tipping because I came to the conclusion that it was wrongheaded of me to prevent guests who wanted to say thank you to staff members who were putting themselves on the line uh, especially during dangerous times of COVID, prohibit them from being able to say thank you with a tip. And it was also wrongheaded of me to prohibit our staff members from accepting that gratitude. So what we did, similar to what you just heard from Nina, was that in reinstituting tipping, we also began for the first time to pay a, a share of our revenue on a nightly basis to the people in our kitchen who are not eligible to receive tips. We don't have a line on our guest check because unfortunately in New York State, that's still not legal for some crazy reason. What we would love to see uh, our state do, since this is a state rule, is to provide for uh, tips to be shared so that when you come to a restaurant and you wanna say thank you, you know that your tips are not only being shared between the people who brought the food to your table, but are being shared amongst everybody. So you brought up a couple things in that last answer. 
um, that I'd like to kind of touch back on. I think that that the restaurant industry was hit really hard by hashtag Me Too uh, issues, kind of starting a few years ago, um, and then Black Lives Matter happened, and now into a pandemic. So we've had a series of real seismic uh, shifts that have, in some ways, perhaps. I mean, it's an industry that hasn't historically had great human resources apparatus or a lot of the kind of um, built-in infrastructure of other industries. So for both of you, is this a moment um, where some good can come in terms of reconceptualizing equity issues or, or, or those kinds of things? And, and Nina, I'd love to start with you. Sure, I, uh, like you said, last year was a year of bringing us to our knees and really looking at things and reevaluating not just our lives, but our business structure. Um, I think a lot of things, you know, did come up uh, negatively, but I think in a positive way, it made us really stop and think about how this industry, you know, has so many faults and we need to think about that. I remember I was on a, it was a Zoom call I was on with somebody and they were talking about the, this industry needs to break and then reform. And I think now we're in reforming the industry in a, in a really in a beautiful time, as negative as uh, things may seem. I think this is the time to rebuild and, and pluck out the things that don't make sense and to pluck out the things that need to make sense and really focus on, you know, equity, to talk about uh, race, to talk about uh, harassment. You know, a lot of people don't have an HR department um, in their restaurants. So a lot of those things we are brought, it's brought to the forefront and we have to really focus on those things on how we treat our staff, how we treat our guests equally and make it as that's really important. Um, you know, it's one of those things that the restaurant industry is so fast paced. We're constantly moving it. You know, the dining room is full, the ticket, the ticket machine is rolling and we never really stopped and said, okay, how do we make this industry better? How do we make our place better? And those are the things that we have to really focus on is those issues that are indifferent and making it a better place and facing them head on is really important now because that is the only way we can move forward because we talk about, you know, toxic workplaces, you know, an angry kitchen, those things you don't, you know, we stop before we actually speak now. And I think that's really important where people say, I'm going to think about what I'm going to say before I actually say it. And we're at this time right now. So Danny, you have a, a much larger ship to, to uh, reorient, but what, what kinds of things um, have you instituted or, or have you ditched even um, in, in order to kind of meet these, this series of challenges that we've just talked about? Uh, well, first of all, I, I fully agree with Nina. This, this is an amazing industry and let's just, just not forget what we do. We're in the business of making people feel better. We're not sending people to the moon and we're not curing cancer. We are hopefully a business that is about hospitality, which is about giving you a couple hours in your day or your life that that take care of you and they're on your side. And, and if you think about it, if you have a toxic workplace and the food is not being prepared with love and people are not feeling included uh, who work at the restaurant, how in the world can we possibly achieve our greater mission of hospitality? And, you know, a lot of what's been going on in this industry, even when you have a really positive culture, uh, which I believe we've had for years, 
you learn when you peel back the onion layers, it could be a whole lot better. And there have been people who have been left out and not included and, and perhaps not nearly uh, as diverse of a workforce as we need going forward. And so what we've done is to take a really hard look at ourselves. Uh, we have hired outside uh, advisors to help hold, hold up the mirror to us and show us where we can do a lot better. And it, it's truly about doing a much, much better job of, I think, listening and, and measuring and, and asking yourselves, where do you want to be? And then holding yourselves accountable for getting there. So one of the things we've done for the first time this year is to actually publish on our Union Square Hospitality Group website all of our diversity statistics, as well as what our goals are. And so on a quarterly basis, we can let anyone know who either wants to work in our company or, or might say this would be a reason I would choose to dine with that group. And let me see what they say that they want to do and, and let's see how they're doing. And that's something we just never thought of before. But I've always believed that when you measure something that matters to you, it, it'll get better. Uh, it's, it's something that somebody told me pretty soon after the George Floyd murder and we were looking at the diversity statistics in terms of the, 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 both the gender and racial makeup of our company was, yeah, we need to do a lot better there, but that's only a start because they said, think about it. If, if you were throwing a party and you invited more people that created a more diverse population, but you ignored them during the party and didn't make people feel welcome during the party, that's almost worse than if you had not invited them in the first place. And so we're truly taking a look at every aspect of it. That was wonderful. I think we're gonna have to leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, Danny and Nina, thank you both so much for sharing your morning with us today. And as always, my name is Laura Riley. I'm with The, the Post and thanks for joining us. To check out what interviews we have coming up, please head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find out more of our upcoming events. Thanks. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.